Hello and welcome to another episode of the Reptiles and Research podcast, hosted by myself, Liam Sinclair, and Ellie Hills. Today's guest is Adam Trimmings, who is a zookeeper here in the UK, but also keeps privately and is breeding some really cool niche and nerdy species. He is keeping and breeding the Boyd's Forest Dragon, the Indonesian Forest Dragon, and some Abronia, and is also dabbling with blue tree monitors and now green tree pythons. So we have an excellent episode here for you today with some really, really different species and their care requirements are a little bit out there, which I find really interesting. Before we dive into today's episode, we'd like to thank Custom Reptile Habitats for sponsoring the podcast. If you're interested in premium PVC reptile enclosures, you can follow through the link below. Anything you purchase does give us an extra kickback at no extra cost to you, so by upgrading your care, you can support the running of this podcast. If you would like to know who the guests are ahead of time and submit your own questions to these guests before they come on, then you can join the Patreon for £1 a month and that will give you access, as well as all the other content that's on Patreon. There's no obligation, but if you want to support the running of the channel, that's there for you. Other than that, let's get into today's episode. Thank you very much for joining us, Adam. Obviously, you are someone that I had had my eye on as a guest for a while. Before we go into all the niche and nerdy things you've got. Who are you and what is it you do? Okay, so yeah, my name's Adam Trimmings. Um, I am a zookeeper currently and have been a zookeeper for nearly 12 years. Um, so it's, it's uh, the animal industry has always been, you know, part of my uh, profession. Um, and with that, it's also a big passion and hobby of mine as well. So I've been keeping... Uh, reptiles um, at home for as long as I've been you know um, yeah working within the industry so ever since I left home and I was had the ability to you know get all these weird and wonderful creatures um, yeah so I've been keeping a long time and as I said I'm very fortunate in that my hobby is my passion and it's also my career so I'm, I'm really really lucky. That is very lucky there's a lot of people that are actually struggling to combine the two so i can see how that is a great way to go about things and, and that leads us into what are the niche and nerdy things you're keeping so i like to you know don't get me wrong in the years and in the beginning i was keeping the common stuff um and i think that's important you know and i like to call them the bread and butter because these animals that are more commonly kept and more commonly available and you know commonly you know, affordable for people they do allow people to explore other niches and learn and adapt and change the way they do things um so yeah so i was i was keeping beardies and you know uh, hog noses and things like that in, in the in my early keeping years and then i kind of i don't know i was just got to see other species and which weren't commonly kept or bred and not much was really known about them and something just drew me to think oh you know what I'm going to give them a go I, you know, I like a challenge and I like the ability to try things that haven't really been tried before and in doing that I, I've learned a lot um, some were failures and some were successes like with anything we do with these um, with these animals it's, it's not all plain sailing and Unfortunately, you know, we do learn hard lessons, but I think as long as you learn from that and you prevent that happening later on, then, you know, you've got to take positives from this. So 
yeah, and I managed to do really well with some some species I was keeping, and um, in particular the Boyds, the Boyds forest dragons. And I'll just tell you a bit about how that came about, um, because I went backpacking around the world when I was 23, so I finished my degree. I'd worked for a year and um, to save up, and then I went to, yeah, Australia, and I was 23. I had an interest in reptiles and amphibians and, and wildlife in general. You know, I've always been big into uh, animals. And I was in um, Cairns. I lived in Cairns for four months in a hostel um, where I was, you know, just saving up basically. And just I loved the city. It was a really cool city. But Cairns is in the Northern Territory. So you're in the tropics. And I got the opportunity to do some of the excursions through the hostel I worked at. Um, and one of the trips was to the Atherton Tablelands, which is in the, the northern part of, of, of the, the territory and incredible place. It's, it's literally Jurassic Park. It is just so, so beautiful. And that's where I encountered my first Boyd's Forest Dragon. And I'd never seen one before. I didn't even know they existed. And they're common as muck. They're everywhere um, in the rainforest. They're very common, agamid. But when you see one in its natural habitat, just doing what they do where they just perch on a vertical branch and our guide found one for us and he sort of took us up and none of us had seen it at this point and he explained a bit about them and then when I firstly laid my eyes on it I was just blown away because they are you know just outstanding it was a big male it's a really nice mature male and that I'll never forget that moment it's it stayed with me forever and um and then years and years later, when I started to keep privately and I started to, um, you know, be exposed to the hobby, um, someone was offering captive bred boys forest dragons. And I couldn't believe it. You know, I, I just didn't think they would ever be available. And I took a punt and, you know, I ended up getting these tiny little hatchlings, set a sexed pair and paid an arm and a leg for them because, you know, there's not many people with them. And it was a big gamble, but luckily it paid off for me because, um, I still have the breeding pair now, eight years later. Um, and they've really, for me, given me that platform to build a rare collection because I was able to, you know, do well with breeding them, sell offspring um, to other breeders. And, you know, therefore any money I made breeding them went straight back into the hobby, as you can, you know, probably sympathise with. That's what a lot of people do is, you know, you know, you, 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 it just helps you build your your collection, and 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 that's and that's down to those animals, and yeah, uh, incredible, incredible species to keep, and um, yeah, I've really really enjoyed it. So I guess we can already imagine what you're going to answer, but I will ask for the sake of it. What are your thoughts about the importance, or lack of, or not even importance, of species diversity in the UK hobby? So, you know, it's, it's a big question, this, isn't it? And especially with, with the way Brexit's affecting things. So I think it boils down to people's interest and what people want to achieve, whether they're keeping for, you know, just, just as pets and as just as animals because they like them and they like the look of them or whether people are wanting to keep species that aren't commonly kept and it, and it is a gamble with some cases and I think that does put a lot of people off if if they're not common people don't really want to venture because there's that element of risk involved and there certainly was that for me as well 
but I think species like this should become more popular and you know because they are just so so unique and they're beautiful and, and you know their husbandry requirements and it's obviously something you're going to want to touch upon in more detail but it's not dissimilar to other common species we've got it's just I guess a lot of the rarer stuff has a higher pay uh, price tag on it um, which is what might put people off and you know with our links with Europe being drastically affected now because of Brexit and our ability to be able to source you know species from over um, overseas there is that concern as to what will happen to the UK's hobby um, hobby market because I don't know whether people are going to want to spend the extra money and the extra effort to source animals from like I said from Europe where there's far more diversity I hope it makes people want to branch out and, and want to to do more and there's a lot of shops now in the uk that are actually some of their species on their on their uh, stock list it's really really diverse they're really good and there's some you know exciting um yeah exciting shops with some fantastic you know species being made available and um i think in time people will you know really delve into the sort of rarer stuff and i hope it doesn't phase out the common stuff because as i said they've always got their place and they, they'll always be here. Um, and, and people need those species to, to help help learn. But I think more people now with the understanding of how we manage and maintain species in captivity and our husbandry and heating and lighting, all, all these new advances, th this will only help improve people's, um, you know, uh, understanding of keeping these animals in captivity. So let's go into Boyd's forest dragons. I first saw these in, I think, Southampton Reptiles, the first one that I saw. And it that was mine. Was it yours? That was there. That, that was my one of my animals, yeah. Small world, eh? And that, yeah. that, that animal absolutely blew me away. Yeah. So I'm actually very excited about the species. So I think before we go any further about their care itself, could you just go over a little bit about their natural history? Yeah, so they're, um, as I said, they're from Australia, um, from the Northern Territory in, in the tropics of Australia. Um, and they were formerly Hypsilaris boidi, and they were reclassified. I can't remember the exact year, maybe 2010, 2011, maybe, um, as Lothosaurus uh, boidi. Um, and actually looking at it, they're so different to any other Hypsilaris um, in, the, in the genus. So... Um, you can fully understand why they were reclassified. And they're just, um, yeah, as I said, the habitat is just incredible. It is like something straight out of Jurassic Park. It's ancient, the oldest uh, rainforest on the planet. Um, they're found, you know, um, the rainforest is really different in that. It's quite, a, it's quite temperate. It's quite cool. It's not a, everyone thinks rainforest as being, you know, really hot and humid and uh, and it does get warm in the summer, but it's it's they've evolved to to withstand quite cool temperatures, um, especially in the winter uh, winter months when it does drastically drop up there. Um, and yeah, they play a massive part in the ecosystem. Obviously, the the they they're a big part of the food chain, being a big insectivorous lizard, um, and as themselves are also predated on by lace monitors and. Uh, scrub pythons and you know, cassowaries will probably pick up little baby boids as they're roaming through the forest. So 
it's a really yeah incredible intricate um connection they've got with yeah with 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 the habitat and the animals that they live with um yeah the incredible animals i think the one thing that absolutely fascinated me about them was that they're i believe they're thermoconformers aren't they yeah so a lot of a lot of forest species are and people you know thermoconforming versus thermoregulation you know i wouldn't say they're strictly a conformer because you know reptiles will bask they have to obviously to thermoregulate their body temperature and it's thought that species like boids and conicephalus and a lot of other rainforest garments will will move you know through the forest um you know uh height you know uh, uh, high level to low level and you know there's thermal gradients throughout that that region whereas thermoregulators of you know the classic is a bearded dragon that will sit out and bask in, in direct sunlight really charges body up but you know gravid females will have to do that boys they'll have to go out and bask and, and you know incubate the eggs while, whilst they're gravid and um there are reports of, of them basking in direct you know sunlight coming through the canopy but generally speaking we will do refer to these species as, as conformers because you know in a rainforest, they're very cryptic. They, they don't like to give their whereabouts away. So they're not very active. They don't move around much. As I said, if they're on a vertical branch, they just shimmy up and down to, to, to basically control their body temperature. Um, and it may just be like two or three degrees, you know, above or below what they want. Um, and that's just how they've evolved, obviously, to stay um, hidden in, in, in the rainforest and not be picked off and predated on. So, but... They will also bask openly, um, you know, on side of roads. They've been seen basking in direct sunlight and things. So, it's yeah, it's it's not a strict rule. That's what they are. I think there's a bit of leeway between that. Oh, I was going to say, have they found it being linked to seasonality? So they only be basking on the road when it's cold, or is it just something that happens randomly? So during winter, you don't actually often see them. They're quite high up in the forest. It's very cold. So they, they, they're, they're pretty inactive during the cooler months. Um, and the nights really get cold. Um, uh, when I was up there, it was, you know, it was, it was just going um, into their winter uh, months and it was, it was chilly. So, and yeah, exactly. Like in the summer months when it's warmer, it's breeding season, animals are going to be, you know, a bit more active, males especially, looking for females um and as i said you know females will have been seen openly basking on, on the sides of the roads where there's a bit of clearing so yeah definitely seasonal changes will will affect their behavior for sure and and how active they are um yeah so less reliant on heliothermy but don't actually avoid it altogether exactly exactly that you know they've, they've got to be adaptable haven't they they can't just strictly go no i'm not going to bask like that because that's not what i do they've got they've got to do what what's what's right at the time that's given to them but it just so happens that you know thermoconforming is is just a more popular means of um thermoregulation for them so in terms of their care i know a lot of videos that i've seen or people that have been talking about information they just provide like a uv linear tube and then keep them at an ambient room temperature in terms of what provision of heat and lighting that you provide where are you with that so yeah i'm the same with that they, they very quickly overheat um and too much heat is 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 lethal to them it really is um on hot hot days i've had to turn all lighting off because 
I've got a four-way, a four-bulb T5 unit um, above them in a, a Flomex tool enclosure, six foot tall, three foot wide, two foot deep. And that kicks out some heat, even though it's not shortwave infrared heat, it, those units still do kick out a nice ambient heat. So it is much hotter at the top of the VIV than it is mid to low. Um, and they they do fluctuate up and down. Like I see them, you know, performing and 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 behaving and performing that that behaviour. So um, I guess it boils down to size and enclosure. You know, if you give animals more space, you give them more control of their environment. If you give them small space, you're massively drastically reducing their ability to pick and choose what they want. So. I always liked the concept of, you know, yeah, give them more space, you're giving them more choice, more, you know, chance to pick and choose thermal gradients within their environment. Same goes for UV. You know, a lot of people think all rainforest species need low UV. Well, that's true to an extent because obviously once by the time UV's passed through the canopy and through all the plants, UV they're getting is, you know, massively reduced. But when you're putting low UV over a viv which is then densely packed with plants because that's the type of habitat they need they're not actually giving them much choice of getting uv and you know in the wild animals will pick and choose the intensity of uv they want just as they do temperature um so it's it's something to really consider but then there's obviously the risk factor of it all boils down to that how your enclosure is designed and how you themed it as to whether that could be detrimental to their health um, and that's something that really needs to be taken into consideration. So what UVI are you targeting then for your voids? Are you just letting it cascade downwards? Yeah, so at the top in the open, most open bit, it'd be hitting around 2, 2.5. Um, and then as you know, as you go further down the enclosure, that depletes. And then there's there's Kentia palms and things and under the palms. So, you know, some days they'll be out basking directly under there's no cover and they can be like that for a day and they're getting obviously a lot of uv and then the following days after that they'll be in lower areas of the enclosure where it's massively reduced and they kind of yeah they just um as i said they're not very active so they pick and choose and you know it's i like to think they have complete choice of, of where they're getting their uv from and how much they're getting um rather than sticking a very low amount of uv to begin with and then have them just being under it constantly because they're trying to get as much uv from the bulbs as they can and that means that they're staying constantly under it if that makes sense they're constantly there just trying to get as much uv as they can so in the rainforest you know obviously it's it's changing there's patches of light there's um little openings which you know these these animals do take advantage of and do do use so um but yeah like i said i guess the biggest message would be bigger and bigger space bigger choice and um let let them do their the 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 picking of of what they what they require so in this bigger space then what sort of air temperatures are we reaching uh say let's say at the top versus at the bottom so on a hot summer's day it could hit high 20s at the top and then drastically drop to say the floor of the enclosure could be 18 20 you know it's really and then in anywhere in between that so it's yeah it's a real you know good um good opportunity for them to like i said pick and choose what temperature they want 
Um, you know, on a hot day, as I said, they're normally mid enclosures. There may be it's maybe three and a half foot off the ground. And if I was the temp gun, then it maybe be mid mid twenties um, air temperature. Um, and as I said, you know, occasionally the female, especially if she's gravid, she likes the warmer temperatures and she'll be up a bit higher, getting a bit more heat and probably more UV as well while she's incubating it or, you know, while she's gravid with eggs. So are you keeping these in a room with other cooler species? Because uh, I was just thinking about them temperatures that I would never hit 18 at the bottom in a room like this or the bearded dragon. And Liam, this is this moves on to my point of, of you know, why... Um, unfortunately i'm gonna to have to be moving these animals on because i have a cool room and i have a tropical room and i have a room in between that so um yeah you can't keep a species like boys in a, in a normal reptile room it would just get too hot the ambient would just be too warm because of all the other so i have mine in my dining room which is quite open um and there's only four vibs um in in that big space so it doesn't actually kick out too much heat and the great thing is and this is really important is allowing these animals to get a really good nighttime drop and i think it's something that people really struggle to do in captivity and i have in the past because of having too many other species that require warmer temperatures so yeah um when all the heating well sorry all the lighting goes off nothing's got excess um adequate sorry nothing's got um added heat it's just they go to room temperature and then I, I control that if I need to by having a window ajar or it generally stays pretty cool um, because, it's, as I said, it's in a big open room and it does allow that heat just to escape. Um, and that's really important. Keeping animals too warm for too long, obviously, is, is really, really detrimental to their a reproductive cycling and also longevity and captivity. I think a lot of reptiles have the ability to live a long, long time if kept properly and cycled properly and given those nighttime drops. But when they're kept too warm, their metabolism's kept higher and therefore their bodies are working overtime to, to maintain. And then I think over years and years, that just has a big knock-on effect and, and can cause, unfortunately, animals to, you know, not, not live as long as they maybe should do. It's quite interesting, actually. I never really thought about the fact that you should think about all of your other collection that you also keep and how that impacts everyone else um because i have a jackson's chameleon and obviously at night they have that temperature drop and things like that and yeah i keep more tropical so that's not been an issue for me but yeah i guess it makes sense why i shouldn't have a bearded dragon in my bedroom <laughs> i mean it's you know i'm lucky in that i bought my own house last year and i have three rooms <laughs> for my animals and um i as i said i have a what I call my display room downstairs in my living, sorry, my uh, dining room, which has cool tropical species in it. Then I have a cool room, which is for species like Abronia, which do need really, really cold winters. So during winter, I had a window constantly open in that room and the door shut, and I let it get to 12 degrees, which, you know, is 10 to 12 degrees, which is what they need. And then I had a tropical room, which I could maintain and keep at sort of, you know, 18 to 20 at night. And I think that's where, you know, not everyone's as fortunate as, you know, and fortunate enough to have multiple rooms to try and fit a thermal niche. Um, like I said, a cool room and a tropical room are two very different. And if you're trying to keep cool species within a tropical room, you're going to struggle. And vice versa, if you're trying to keep a tropical species in a cool room, 
someone's going to suffer. Someone's not going to get the right thermal gradients th- throughout the seasons, throughout the years. And, and as a result, yeah, it's, it's, it's not going to end well for one species probably. So it is something to consider. So it's all about collection planning. 100%. It's something we do in zoos. It's a big thing I've been exposed to, but collection planning, exactly, in species. And is that species right for you with your current collection? You know, it's sometimes it's a tough pill to take and you've got to think, oh, I really want that species. I really want to work with it. But actually, does it fit what I'm currently doing? Will it be happy with the kind of temperatures that I give my current collection? And if it doesn't, there's no point because you're not going to be ready and you're not going to do that species justice because it's, you know, and I've learned the hard way. I've done that over the, you know, over the years, had a species where probably not being kept to its, you know, its full um, requirements because of other species that I was keeping and, and they maybe took priority. And it's, it's, it's one of those where you've really got to think, do I go cool temperate or do I go tropical? If I can do both, then I need two rooms. I need a cool, temperate room and I need a tropical room and I think you know especially with the way I think the hobby's going I think that's how people will start keeping things um is is more along the lines of you know do I need to keep a reptile that I need to heat throughout winter because our winters get too cold or do I keep reptiles that actually can take the night drops let's say and don't require any heating therefore my electric bill is going to be you know much much more reduced than trying to heat a whole room full of reptiles that are needing, you know, really, really high temperatures. So it's definitely going to have a big impact. I can see temperate, you know, high montane species becoming more popular because they're going to require far less, um, yeah, expenditure in electric. I mean, yeah, I can see that. I mean, I, I currently work in a reptile shop and I've already been saying like with your electricity bill and the, the amount that that is, you're going to have to start planning like temperate species and stuff just to give yourself that break. Yeah, exactly that. And, you know, I, I think I'd like to think, you know, and it's something I've, I've really investigated and, 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 um, and looked into this last summer is I've, I've got an outdoor area for some species to go out in summer because it's better for them. I'm not using artificial heating and lighting for them on, on a nice hot day and it saves my electric. So I think that's another way people might look at it is if I can keep an animal for three, four months outside during our summer hot months, that's great. And, you know, bring them in over our winters if it's too cold. And you'll probably see, you know, some species really doing well for that kind of, you know, um, you know, uh, husbandry and, and being kept in those ways i think it's a really good good system and that leads into diversity again i really hope that we don't lose some species in the uk hobby through this financial electricity crisis we're going through yeah i hope not too um you know oh, i can only say you know the people that keep the big big pythons and monitors and iguanas and things they're you know they're the ones that are going to be well they should be keeping those animals with with relatively large enclosures which cost a lot of money to heat and they're the ones i think we're going to see popping up in the sort of rescue homes things because i think people just aren't going to be able to you know um potentially um afford to keep them and yeah and as you said maybe people that have just got them as pets and they they're not breeding them so therefore they're not making anything off them 
maybe they'll consider and think, well, you know, yeah, I like this, but actually I'd rather have the extra 50 quid in my bank every month than what I'm paying to heat it. And that's really sad because I think it will it will um, twist people's arms to, to give up their hobby. And I just hope it doesn't, as you say, I just hope it doesn't come to that and, and, and force people's hands. Um, so, yeah, but I guess that will see, we'll see people's commitment and dedication to, to the hobby, I guess. And, and the ones that really are invested and want to do it, they'll make it work. They'll cut, they'll make cuts that they need to make cuts on to, to make sure that they can keep these animals and, and do it properly. So, um, yeah, I'm hopeful. Fair enough. Right, let's just swing back to the boys a little bit. Obviously, they are quite rare in the UK. What sort of numbers are you working with in terms of breeding? And do you know how many other breeders there are in the UK at all? So I'm the only breeder currently in the UK. Um, I have a breeding pair. That is it. I've produced quite a few animals, and some of those animals have gone to really good keepers here in the UK. Um and there are, off the top of my head, maybe three or four breeders in Europe um, with potentially different bloodlines. So there's not many out there. Um, so, yeah, it's one of those which, you know, we could say genetically, are they viable, you know, as a, as a species in, in captivity? With the right people keeping them, the right people breeding them, yes, I think so. But again, that comes down to they're going to need to work. There's going to, you know, there's got to be that outreach of you're going to have to deal with people overseas. You're going to have to deal with other breeders that are doing well with them to exchange bloodlines. And one of the reasons I'm actually moving the species on, I'm sad to say, is just space me having to focus on other species but also um what brexit's done to the hobby it's it's really affected our ability to to work with people overseas and in europe and um as i said there's some good keepers in the uk working with them now which is really good and i will do my utmost to help those um people in, in being able to source through contacts i have um, and, and share those contacts but um, yeah it's 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 a shame that there wasn't more people working with them um, is, 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 is the honest truth and I think they are they're quite unique as well as I said and I think in the past a lot of people failed with them because of probably keeping them too warm having them you know um, in a reptile room with lots of other reptiles which they just wouldn't have fared well with and um, so, yeah, they really are quite a specialist um, species and require quite, you know, quite a good understanding of their husbandry and, and care. So did, did you sell to anyone that bought pairs or did, did people buy individual animals? So, no, I've, I've sold pairs and I've sold unsexed. Um, they're a hard species to sex. And I don't know whether you're aware, but they are the only known lizards or vertebrate, I believe, to have changed sex. An Australian zoo had a, a female, a proven female, um, who had, had many clutches laid. And one day a keeper noticed she had an enlarged head and she was showing very male traits. And they took an X-ray and this animal had actually developed hemipenes and become male. So it's pretty amazing. 
Um, so yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty tricky. They're sexually dimorphic. When you see a pair, they're very, very different. Um, they're quite tricky to sex when they're young. I've tried to transluminate through the back of the tail to show the hemipenes and what I thought was definitely hemipenes ended up becoming a female and what I thought was a female because there were no hemipenes present turned out to be a male. So they they can throw you, they can um yeah definitely make it tricky to try and sex them. But yeah, um I've yeah managed to sell sexed animals, well pairs and and unsexed um yeah and just trying to yeah get as many out there as possible. I think that's amazing, isn't it? That like these animals that are so hard to keep are actually so hardy if they're given the right things. Like they get such a bad rap, but as long as you're meeting those parameters, they can do amazing things. Absolutely. Exactly that. And, um, you know, we're always learning, you know, we, we think we know something and we're an expert or whatever, and, you know, but actually they can throw a curveball and you just go, oh my God, I had no idea that they could do that or you know that behavior i've just seen i didn't you know it's really cool and that's what i love about it you know um you can become very knowledgeable in a species and in a field but actually you're never an expert because you're never going to know everything and they can always just yeah really really surprise us which is which is really cool and the more you know the more you realize how much you don't know it's <laughs> 100 exactly no exactly that so one element that I wanted to ask about was, uh, is it sort of, first of all, what, what is the price tag of these animals? And is it sort of challenging finding these offspring new homes in the UK? Yeah, so as I said, they're, they're, not, they're not cheap because they are rare. And there's, there's quite, there's certainly a demand in Europe for them. I'm, you know, you get regular messages of people just asking if I have points available. Um, they typically go for anywhere from 1,500 a pair to 2,000 a pair. Um, that could change because I think the market is open for them. So um, it could climb. Um, but we need more people to do better with them. You know, we need more successes, more breeding, more genetics, more bloodlines. So to answer your question, Liam, yeah, it is hard to move them on um, in the UK. Um, I had, I've had a few customers, obviously, um, who, who currently have them here, but they're very niche and I don't know whether the UK market really is that big for rare expensive lizards like that. Um, that may change as we've explained and said, you know, maybe the hobby is going to go more diverse and I really hope to see it does. And there are some shops out there, as I said, who are getting some really, really cool rarer species and they do have price, high price tags on them as well, but for good reason, because they, you don't want any Dick Tom or Harry just buying these animals if they were super cheap, not being committed and, and giving them exactly what they need. So I think sometimes to have a high price tag is important because you'll only attract the really dedicated keen keeper who's definitely going to be giving that animal because they've invested a lot of money in it. So they want to make sure that that animal is looked after and given the correct care that it, it needs and deserves. So what is the current status of the project? You said they're moving on. When are they moving on? And I believe off camera, Tommy had some eggs in the incubator. So is that the last thing? So I've got, so the breeding adults are going to a good friend in Germany. Um, he already has boids in his collection. 
and I knew he would want to, you know, he would have done the same for me if he was wanting to move them on, he would have offered me them first. So I don't have space for more pairs. Um, I just don't, if anything, I, I need to re- reduce what I'm keeping. So it kind of made me think, you know what, what's best for the species is to go to someone who will do really well with them, hopefully produce offspring from multiple pairs and be able to offer out unrelated animals which in the long run will be better for the species longevity and captivity um and i do have eggs incubating so you know they will move on as well um and I, as i said there's 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 people out there that i know are interested in keen in, in working with them here in the uk and over in europe and 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 other um other places so they're not gone forever. I do very well with them and have done. And it's um, it's time to pass that that on to someone else and, and have have me concentrate on some other projects that I've got going. Um, but um, I will miss having them for sure. They are great. And there may be a species I'll look to get in the future. I'm not saying I'll never keep them again. I can't wait to see the back of them because that's not the case at all. They're, they're probably my favourite species of, uh, of lizard. And it's a species I'm sure I will definitely, as I said, um, look to keep again in the future. Just right now, in my collection planning, they're just not they're 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 not fitting in as, as I'd like them. And, and as I said, I'll, I need to prioritise, um, yeah, what I'm keeping. Right. So, if there's anyone now that's watching this episode or listening to this episode that wants to pick up the last few that's available, now's your chance. Join the queue. <laughs> Join the queue. There you are. Let's move on from the Boyds. You have another species of forest dragon, don't you, that you're working with? I do, yeah. So, like the Boyds, they're very dragon-like. They have a very cool appearance. And the New Guinea crested dragon, or Lophosaurus dilophus, that's the third species. There's three species in the genus. The species is from um, New Guinea. They are pretty much a boys just on a different you know, different part of the world. They've evolved to do exactly the same thing. Um, so they're very, very similar in appearance, um, slightly different. They get a bit bigger, um, just awesome animals, really similar to boys. If, if you like boys, you'll like uh, Dilophus. Um, they are very... Uh, very very cool lizards and um again a species that i will be moving on because of the same reasons the boids and um it hurts me and pains me to do it but it's it's the right thing to do so is their ecology very similar to the boids in that sort of the way they thermo or thermoregulate and whatnot so i assume their care is basically you do care from exactly the same are you exactly the same other than the fact they like it a bit warmer so i do have um a reptile radiator that maintains their viv slightly warmer throughout the night and throughout the year so for example winter you can drop voids to 12 to 15 degrees at night they can take that that's no problem the dial office i wouldn't want to drop below 15 to 18 you know that's that's the cooler temperatures and actually probably keep it a bit warmer than that so yeah they can tolerate the warmer temperatures for sure um what's interesting um is clutch size uh Boydy, the female i have who's a lot smaller than the female dial office, she lays anywhere from three to five eggs in a clutch every four to five weeks during the breeding season. 
Whereas the dilophus, well, they, she took longer to mature, to, sex, to sexual maturity, and she only ever lays two eggs in her clutch. They're quite big eggs when they're laid. Um, it's annoying because it sometimes throws me when she's laid or not. When my boys is laid, it's, it's unrecognised. You can just tell straight away because she's lost so much body condition. I normally see her digging or test digging before she lays, whereas the dilophus, you just wouldn't know. Um, the eggs obviously sit very symmetrically through her abdomen, so there's no bulging really. And uh, she's very sneaky when she lays because she digs a nice little nest and she covers it over and pats it down, but there's never any soil on her. So I can never tell. And I don't know how she does it. I don't know whether she goes into the water bar and just washes it off, but she's immaculate. She's, you know, she doesn't look any different from, you know, um, when she when she did before she laid. So, yeah, the clutch size is very different. So productivity of the Dilophis is, is very low. Um, and I've only ever managed to hatch two eggs. Uh, and uh, the first one I ever hatched didn't survive, unfortunately. It had a tremor uh, when, when it was born, uh, which I'm not sure what caused that, but it didn't live past a month old, whereas I have a juvenile upstairs that's now four months old and doing really, really well. And I have three eggs incubating currently, and um, she looks to be gravid again. So... They're just, yeah, they're not as productive at all. Um, but behaviour, morphology, everything else is pretty much the same as boys. They are literally the same lizards, just slightly different in their visual appearance, but they do exactly the same job within their um, eco, um, uh, their, their uh, climate, their habitats they're found in. So I assume their production basically matches the demand for them at the moment anyway. So do these come in on Indonesia shipments still, or...? Do these come in while caught into the UK hobby? Or yeah, so they, they do come in while caught. So minor captive bred from um, Czech Republic. There's a breeder out there. And they do come in on legal shipments. Um, but wild courts don't fare well in captivity. They really are very specialist. You really need to know what you're doing with them. Um, they come in very stressed, dehydrated, very heavy burdened with, with parasites. So um they're not for the inexperienced i've never dealt with wild court but i know people that have and and really struggled with them um and had people contact me and ask for advice on how to care for them when they've come in wild court so yeah it's it's the case of you know species coming in and, and and not doing well and that's what we kind of want to prevent we want species to be coming in coming into the right hands being bred and actually having because once they're captive bred they're pretty they're pretty hardy. They're pretty, you know, they're pretty robust. But um, when they come in wild caught as adults, as I said, it's it's uh, sometimes a challenge to, to to get them to do well and, and breed for us, especially if they come from the wild and they're already used to the, you know, the, the seasonal changes, the climatic pressures, all these factors that influence their breeding in the wild. Sometimes we just can't replicate, even though we try our hardest with the technology we have. Sometimes it just isn't enough to get them to go and breed for us so um occasionally we can get lucky and have females um potentially drop viable eggs from wild mating um you know, from mating in the wild but that's not always the case so um yeah as i said if you are looking to get wild caught be careful with them and yeah, just just do your research so you're gonna have to really dial that in spend a lot of money getting that right for wild caught it's not a cheap animal by any means no. 
And what I think a lot of people do, the mistake they make is they know they come in burdened. You know, any stressed animal has a has a you know a sudden surge in internal parasites. That's how they that's how parasites work. Is you know it's once an animal's stressed and, and vulnerable and, and burdened, the, the, that's when these things take hold, and it's often that that kills them. So they'll often shove wormer down their throat when they get them to to you know help with the parasite burn. But in doing that, you can end up killing the lizard because it's it's not hydrated, it's not got enough food in its reserves, it's not got enough, you know, body fat. So I would recommend, you know, getting these animals, hydrating them, feed them, really, really get them into some condition before you treat. Because, um, it, but I'm not a vet, you know, that's not, that. this is just my personal opinion. I just think some people have got to think, what does the animal need to, to help it, you know, through this stressful time it's just gone through um and uh yeah sometimes it's the simple things that can actually do do really well yeah i hear that advice from wild court echoed quite a lot so moving on from forest dragons entirely then you have abronia which is a very interesting group of animals how did you first go into that foray so abronia are just really really incredible lizards um very special indeed and um yeah just when i saw saw them in a magazine once and just it was the blue-eyed graminia so that's probably the most popular uh abronia out there and just thought you know what an incredible animal and then when you do research into the habitat and their lifestyle and the fact they're live bearings they have litters and you know if you're a big fan of tropical plants like me and bromeliads, tillandsias, orchids, all these things make up their their ecosystems, and they just they all they just they just complement each other, and it really is just amazing. And they're the type of species that, when you do well with, that they're just very very rewarding to to, to have. Um, and again, you know, historically, a lot of them came in wild caught, poached from the wild, did terribly bad with people and no one really knew how to keep them probably kept too hot a lot of the time and that killed them not not given a nighttime drop you know you've got to think they're high altitude they're found in the cloud forests of mexico and guatemala so it gets pretty cold at night and that's that's what they do need they need that ability to they can take the hot days that's fine but if they're not given the ability to get cooler at night it really does have um bad consequences on 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 them um and if you get all that right and you keep them properly and you cycle them and you give them seasonal fluctuations, you can breed them. You know, it's it's been done. I've achieved it this year. I've just had a, a litter of Teniata um, born, which is a real you know highlight for me. I've kept that species for a number of years now and never managed to breed them. And to have them breed is just, yeah, it's a really rewarding, um, really, really good thing to have had. And as I said, you know, really hoping to keep these animals outside for as much of the year as I can. Um, but with this uh, changing weather we keep getting, it can be difficult considering they are very used. These are captive bred animals, the, the adults I have, and they've never been exposed to their wild conditions. And you've got to be careful because, yes, they may be, be able to tolerate those temperatures in the wild, but if they've been bred in captivity, you've got to be careful not to uh, shock them. So, um it's uh, it's a tough one, but as soon as we get a heat wave, they'll be outside in their mesh cages, and yeah, I can turn all the uh, all the electric off and save some money, and, and they can get some decent sun. 
So the only thing that I really know about Aberonia is like I believe they are quite protected. So as there's like a lineage from long before their conservation, the legal status changed, or what's the status of them captive bred wise or wild caught wise in the UK hobby? So they are vulnerable and critically endangered. Um, you know, is is the most species come under that. Some are least concerned. There's a couple of species I keep life for cella, which are least concerned. Um, but you know, there's many many captive bred animals out there now. Um, people really have cracked their their captive breeding of them. Um, so you know taking the pressure off the world court populations i think is you know years ago it was they would like i said they were just coming in world court and you know they are protected as you said and it's um it's no good because obviously there's no good's going to come up take you know smuggling animals illegally for them just to die and you know as i said a lot of people have managed to breed them and, and, and do well with them and there's you know a lot of captive bred um animals in, in, in the hobby now, which is which is really, really good. I believe the only thing that I have seen mentioned is that they go for a, a lot of colour compared to what their wild counterparts are in some conditions of captivity. Um, can you go over what that is? So it's probably most commonly associated with Grumenia, which are the blue-eyed um, species, and they have a yellow ring around their eye, and they're, they're meant to be a emerald green colour. And you can get a blue phase, which is people's way of saying, oh, yeah, this one's like a bluey green because of it's a special, not, not a morph, but it's a, it's a special genetics. It isn't. It is a lack of something in captivity for sure. So um, diet has a big impact on obviously any animal's um, natural coloration and visual appearance and couple that with the right heating and lighting that the sun gives. Um, so I think a deficiency is somewhere there. It's not been quite proven what it is yet. Um, maybe a certain vitamin that they're getting in the wild, which we just can't replicate in captivity. There may be a particular flower that they lick the pollen from that we just haven't discovered yet. But um, there are keepers of that species that do have very nice animals that would naturally you know, represent their wild counterparts but there are also a lot of animals that are lacking in something because you can visually see it in their appearance and they have these very dull, washed out um, colours. And I think that's to be said for a lot of species in captivity, but we just overlook a lot of them. You look at a wild bearded dragon compared to a captive bearded dragon, they do look very different um, in colour and and, and, uh, physical appearance. But I think some species, it's just far more obvious than others. So um, boys, for example, you know, you see a wild boys compared to a captive, it's very, very different. Um, and that, again, is probably something missing that we just haven't thought about or we just haven't managed to replicate yet. And don't get me wrong, it's we're heading in the right direction with a lot of the lighting and heating we offer our reptiles and diet and gut loading of invertebrates and dusting with, you know, specific vitamins and, and minerals is is, you know, very um well known about but we're still not there we're still learning and we always will be learning we'll never get it all and go right well we've done it now we've we've we found out everything it will there'll always be something for us to discover and something for us to help 
and try and maintain was something for us to, you know, um, yeah, just just try and understand. And I think that's that's the beauty of the hobby and and the way we keep animals. You know, th. You look think of th. You know, they they were you know pioneering when they were first created, and it's you know now the t5s out there and now jungle dawns and all these other new heating and lighting elements which we'll look back on in 10 years time and 20 years and go oh god can you remember when we used to keep them under those and something new will have taken over and something different will be um you know available to us so it's yeah but there's definitely like you said Liam, there's definitely something missing in the diet of a lot of these um lizards like abronia which are affecting their uh their color um i don't know the exact science of it um there there is a bit more of a scientific uh um lead on it and what vitamin they're deficient in and, and to do with light level passing through the scale and not reflecting a certain color but i don't actually know it um to, to be able to explain it to you but um yeah i think as long as we can offer and provide variety in what we offer our food our animals as food and also what we offer those feeder animals, you know, people don't realise that actually if you're feeding invertebrates your, your lizard, you need to make sure that you're feeding your invertebrates a nice varied diet and a natural diet if you possibly can. Um, I remember being a zookeeper 10, 15 years ago and we used to just feed our crickets potato because that was the, the thing we did. That was what I was told by the keepers that I was being mentored by that that's how they were taught and you look at it now and you think what 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 good was in a potato that could possibly be good for a cricket that could then be passed on to a lizard there's just you know but back then that was that was the done thing and you know since then we've obviously learned a lot about gut loading and you know different carotenoids and levels of protein and you know all these different things that if we give that to our feeder insect actually that's going to benefit our animal much better and hopefully you'll see that in the colours that you're getting in the animal's physical appearance. And I think that leads into like also not diversity of the animal's actual diet. Like we covered in the previous episode, we both did our theses, including uh, gut loading. And like even between different uh, cricket species, they accumulated different carotenoids at different levels and different amounts. So there is just so much to get right with the gut loading that it's almost silly to just just feed one species of animals which is why i think i would also vary the diet with our captive feeder insects but i would also dip into wild caught stuff i mean that is a very advanced concept to go into but if you're keeping an advanced species then i think i would dip into that a little bit 100 percent. i know a lot of people that keep a brony that actually um sweep fields for grasshoppers and stuff with nets and stuff like that because that's a much more natural diet which i totally get you've got to understand the impact that may have on a particular area you know if we all start going out and catching our own bugs for our captive animals what effect would that have on the um, natural ecosystems and also we're not sure what those invertebrates have been eating or whether they've come into contact with any pesticides so there is a risk element I'm a big fan of cultivating and breeding your own food. So I breed my own cockroaches. I breed my own um, different uh, woodlife species that I use as feeders. And I've got full control and full understanding of what's going into those animals. But saying that, I'm probably missing a lot that I can't give to those animals that a wild invertebrate could be giving if it was a feeder. 
Um, so there's pros and cons for both, for sure. But I think it definitely needs to be considered. Um, yeah, if you were to do it, you do need to understand the, the potential risks involved in it. It's a very big endeavour for someone to go into. So you have to go into it knowing exactly what you're up against. Again, that comes back to, I think, each individual keeper has their own level of accepted risk. So I think it's going to be different for each keeper. But I think that's definitely something that could play a part in some of these colours and some species and whatnot. I believe another project that you're working on is you're raising up some tree monitors. So what are they and how is that project going? Yeah, so tree monitors are an amazing group of uh, varanids. And for me, um, I've kept them in the past and not been able to give them the, the the care and attention they've needed and had to move them on. And I'm now at a stage where I want to focus on, yeah, blue tree monitors of varanids, macrae, and... Um, I've managed to source a young pair of a good friend um, and they're just one of these projects which you know has been in, in, in you know dream in the making and um, I'm you know hoping now that I'm in a stage of, of what I'm keeping at home and how I'm keeping it where I can do these animals justice and currently designing a custom-made enclosure that a good friend of mine is going to build for me um, yeah, and it's it's a really exciting one for me. So, um, yeah, I just hope I do well with them. And I've got I've got a lot of support from from friends that keep and breed them. So, um, yeah, I'm hoping I can I can do them justice, and that will be a really really big um, big uh, dream of mine. I could die a happy man if I managed to to, to breed those amazing lizards because they are just they're a different league. They're very very uh, they're very intelligent. Um, like you know, most varanids are. They're, they're, they're very different to all other lizards. They can problem solve. They they look at you. You know, you, they've got a lot going on in that head. And and um, yeah, as I said, mine are young, so I'm just working with them. There's they're still a trust element there. They're still quite shy, but they're, they're I'm winning them over when I feed them and you know I tongue feed them as best I can and try and get them to associate me with with food with a positive. Um, and I'm hoping as adults that they'll be yeah, just really, really um, a pleasure to keep. And they will anyway, if they're not, you know, sort of tame and friendly. That's not the goal here. I'm not wanting them as a pet and as a, but if I can win them over and win their trust and get them to um, interact with me, because you know, a lot of the lizards I keep don't want to interact and I don't, you know, don't ever force them to. It's, it's not something I'm interested in. As long as they're happy and I can do what I can to keep them happy, that's great. But if you can have a species like a, a tree monitor that actually, you know, dare I say, it, enjoys human contact because a lot of these animals can without using a uh, human characteristic and anthropomorphism, but they can actually, you know, seem to enjoy um, human interaction, and uh, that's 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 cool. But there's a lot of um, patience that's needed with that with these animals, so that's something I'm really hoping um, I, I can I can do. That sounds like it's going to be a massive project for you. So that sounds really exciting. I was going to say, I hope it's a project which I'm going to have for a long time. I, you know, I really hope I do well with them and, and manage to get um, babies and, and start unrelated, you know, groups and stuff. So it's, yeah, it's something I'm really committing towards, which is one of the reasons it massively influenced the big decision of, of moving on the uh, Lothosaurus, um, just to free up a bit of space and a bit of time for, for them. So. 
That's fair enough. So apart from your train monitors, do you have any other future projects? Yeah, so I keep uh, green tree pythons as well um, and uh, successfully bred those twice. And I've got some holdbacks and managed to source some unrelated animals. So again, for me, they're a really special species and species that I'm really hoping to to do well with. And also, you know, I think species like, you know, Varanus macrae and green tree pythons, there's there's always going to be people interested in wanting those animals for sure. You know, I wouldn't, I don't think I'll struggle to move any of those on, um, which, you know, we've got to be responsible when you're breeding um, animals. It's, you know, you're creating life. You're, you're playing God effectively because you're, you're allowing animals to breed and you're, you know, incubating eggs and you've got to make sure that there's a long-term plan for them. And if there's no future and you're going to struggle to move them on or, you know, there's no market for that animal. It's really something you've got to consider if it's right for you. Um, so yeah, having species, as I've said, like the blue trees and the green tree monitors, I think, you know, I love them dearly. I think they're an incredible species. And as I said, I think they'll always hold their value and there's always going to be a big demand for those in the UK and Europe. So I think they're pretty safe as far as um, Brexit's concerned. I think that's a big part of the collection planning also, knowing is there a space for these babies to go into? And I think that's just all a part of being a responsible keeper. Yeah, I mean, I've got friends that keep and breed certain species and um, they destroy eggs because they've either flooded flooded a market and there's no one else you know to sell to or there's no one else and and they just say well there's no I'm not rearing putting in the energy and the effort to rearing these animals for them to just be a problem because I can't move them on to anyone or you know and so it's it, it's one of those it's you know it's being responsible as I said and making sure you're you're doing the right thing by what you're keeping and I think that is a big take-home message for a lot of keepers. So we've approached the hour mark. I think there's a lot for people to chew on there. I think there was a patron question we were going to end with, but you've you've already answered that in a lot of detail for them. So they should be happy with that. Thank you very much for coming on. It's a excellent episode, and it's very. It's a shame that we didn't have start this podcast sooner because it may have generated some fans of the boys and of, and of the Indonesian forest dragons, but hopefully people um, pick up the mantle and start with these species going forward. All sure. about the they'll nation They'll still be around and yeah, they'll, people have got definitely the opportunity if they want them bad enough to work with them. So, yeah, exactly. So fingers crossed for that species. I think people listening will be a little bit inspired by what these are and the prospect of working with them. So thank you very much for coming on.